Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number 41. And today, Maggie and I are joined by a special guest, Maggie's neighbor, Sarah Brown, Tolkien scholar and uh, Signum faculty member. Welcome, Sarah. Good to have you on Other Minds and Hands. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> you know that we, I've been working for Signum for a solid, what, two years before we realized we were 15 minutes down the road from each other? <laughs> Yeah, that, that moment of, hang on, you said you were going to Conrad. <laughs> and we posted a beautiful picture of the mm. Welsh coast, and that's my house. <laughs> yeah. So during yeah. the pandemic, we were uh, meet on the beach walking buddies and things like that. So Nice. And I don't have Wi-Fi yet in my new house, so I'm in yet another location, but it's Sarah's house. This and what a wonderful location and a, and a fantastic opportunity. Sarah, so glad you could join us today. Me too. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's uh, it's really fun to come along to this. Yeah, and yeah. So specialty in myth, so we're pretty excited to kind of. <laughs> oh no, pressure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So today, what what we wanted to talk about, we wanted a, a, sort of a, an interesting adaptation challenge, really kind of a broad question, and that is thinking about myth and how one adapts myth and or how one captures mythic elements in an adaptation. Um, and so I'm thinking in particular here, I want to do a little sort of refresher of what the word myth means. This yeah. is a word that I, um, this is on my, myth is on my short list of like, if I could, if I could influence modern usage of a word, uh, it, myth is on my short list of like words I would I would change how people use and how people understand, uh, because the word myth has been uh, uh, horribly cheapened over the years. So that now, when people say it's a you know that that's a myth or that's mythical, they generally mean nothing other than it's false. Yes, mm -hmm. which is horrible. Um, <laughs> at, you could perhaps refine the definition to say it is a thing that some people believe in, but is actually false, uh, is, is kind of how they, you know, it's not just like if somebody told a lie, they wouldn't call it a myth, right? It has to be, somebody has to believe that it's true, it, but it, but it's really false in order for right. it to be a myth. Um, and that's, um, horrible. Like, I, I mean, I'm not saying that that's not in its way a useful category like that, you know, that, that some people believe in something that, that turns out not to be true. Oh, a handy thing that exists in the world but it's the wrong word to use for it it's the wrong it's, word to use for it yeah yeah it's a mistake yeah. <laughs> it certainly, it certainly oh, yeah. is That's i'll see myself out <laughs> no exactly I remember, I remember in high school getting absolutely struck down by my 10th grade english teacher because i used myth and legend interchangeably mm -hmm. right don't do, don't do right. that guy yeah i learned <laughs> right, exactly. I, and JJ, I don't know if it's the if it's the fault of the Mythbusters show, but certainly the Mythbuster Mythbusters show has absolutely cemented this concept. You know, this this kind of definition of the word myth. Yeah. Um, again, the, the, it's wrong. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, they were clearly building on that concept in order to name the show that. So they didn't start that, but they they certainly did cement it. Um, mm. So let's review for a second um, how how Tolkien defined myth. So like what we're talking about when we're talking about myth, because it's it's certainly not that. Um, and when Tolkien defined myth, it was it was one of those things that he was very like 
words like myth and fairy with a capital mm-hmm. F are two words that he was very kind of nebulous in defining. In fact, even like with fairy in particular, went so far as to say like, it is impossible to capture fairy in a net of words, right? Like you can't really capture what it is. Um, and myth is like that. Uh, it, it's a similar kind of concept that is sort of hard to define. Um, the irony that is irony when compared to the modern usage of myth um, is that uh, in Tolkien's mind, it seemed uh, that myth is actually it may be it may, of course, be false in the sense that it describes events that might not have happened historically. They there might be they might be fictional events. Um but that's not essential to the idea of myth. And in, indeed, if anything, he connected the idea of myth with the idea of truth, that, you know, a mythic story is one that in some way captures or points to or evokes a deep truth about the nature of reality, about human nature, about our own experience and, and, and you know, all of those kinds of things. And it's... Uh, it's when you are telling truth on a really deep level, when you are really kind of capturing or in some way, you know, f- perhaps fleetingly, perhaps temporarily putting your finger on something. So, you know, for instance, the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, the story of, you know, Orpheus's journey to the underworld and playing before, I almost said playing before Mandos, uh, playing bef- <laughs> before uh, Pluto, God of the Underworld. Uh, you know, uh, being granted the favor of leading, uh, uh, you know, his wife Eurydice out of the underworld on condition that he does not turn back to look at her, um, which, of course, is so tied to the whole shape of the story as his inability to stop himself looking back at his wife who had died is what led him to the underworld in the first place, right? His, uh, his, his grief and his inability to get over his grief, right? Um, his inability to let her go. And so he's told he can have her back on condition that like he let her go, right? That he not look back at her. Uh, and of course on the way up, he looks back, uh, just as they're about to emerge, he looks back and sees her and she, as you know, he sees her and she's there and then fades away and he loses her again. Um, even trying to define, like, what does that myth say? Like, what exactly is that myth putting its finger on? It's hard to say. Um, but both Lewis and Tolkien, C.S. Lewis and, and Tolkien both talked about how myths like this, they, they, they affect you in some way, right? You, You know, even when you can't define it, you say like this, there is, there is something, there is something deep here. There is something that touches on like the fundamental nature of what it means to be human. I, I, you know, I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's deeply relatable. You know, I I always reference that Susan Cooper comment about fantasy literature. It's, it's the safety of your armchair where you can experience these epic battles and you can decide where you fall on good and evil and things like that. Myth was pretty similar. You know, here's this crazy experience it doesn't make a lot of sense in if you look at it like logically Mm -hmm. but somehow you can put yourself in that scenario and wonder if you would look back and what you would lose and and Mm -hmm. how and that makes you think and so it teaches you something about yourself in many ways and I think Mm -hmm. if we're looking at what and again hard to pin down myth it's like trying to nail smoke to a door right yeah yeah. but to me myth has always been storytelling around something that is fundamental to the human condition as you were saying what it means to be human uh it's it's not that it's there to teach us something it's it's not like it's an allegory in in that sense sometimes it can be of course but 
It's about stories that are fundamentally about what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in reading that, as you say, you're in a safe space in which you can explore something that is really complex in many ways, but fundamental to who we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and the, the one other uh, distinction that I would make or, or uh, is uh, that there are a couple different ways in which myth can be involved, right? That is, you can tell a story which has sort of mythic overtones, right? Which kind of become, becomes, I, was, I almost use the word inadvertently, and I'm not quite sure that that's exactly right. The distinction I'm trying to make is between a story which in fact does end up hitting people like a myth and a myth that we, and somebody sitting down to do mythopoeia, to use Tolkien's word, somebody sitting down to write mythology. Because this is one of the things that Tolkien also often talked about, about about mythology, like, you know, the, the, the mythic stories that, that every, you know, when people think of Norse mythology or Greek mythology, the stories that they're thinking of, um, it's easy to think about, for instance, the story of Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, when I was telling that story, I, 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 I wonder how many people, many of you might be familiar with that story, but many of you are probably also not thinking of a particular author's work, right? Mm -hmm. Mythic stories tend to like float free in some sense. Like, you know, like, I'm going to read Greek mythology. You don't have, again, most people, when they think about Greek mythology or Norse mythology, they're not thinking about the work of an author, but Tolkien was insistent in on fairy stories about the fact that myths are works of art. Like somebody, somebody wrote that story. We don't always know who it was. We often don't know who it was, who originated the story, but that these stories are works of art that somebody told, that somebody came up with. And so, you can be, you know, Tolkien in his own uh, life kind of did both, right? He did deliberate mythopoeia, like I'm sitting down to write the Book of Lost Tales and I'm going to tell a set of myths, you know, which talks about the creation of the world all the way down through, uh, you know, through through the Elder Days. Um, but then there are other times when he wrote a story which has mythic significance. Like, for, uh, you know, the, the two examples, when C.S. Lewis is talking about myth in, I think it's... Um, uh, uh, his experiment in criticism. He has a chapter on myth there, and he cites two Tolkien examples uh, when he's giving examples of modern uh, modern myth making of mythical stories. Um, and his his two Tolkien examples are Lothlorien and the Ents. Um, mm -hmm. And I totally agree that both of those uh, stories, both of those story elements, have this kind of mythic uh, this mythic quality. But I, I think that unlike in the Book of Lost Tales, when Tolkien was writing the encounter between Merry and Pippin and Treebeard, I don't think he was trying to write a mythology. You know, he was he was sitting down to write mythology in the same way that he was when he wrote the Ainulindale, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, a story can be a myth in that way in more than one sense, right? It can be a myth in the sense that it is a a deliberately constructed mythology. It can also be a myth. Um, in the sense that like you're just you're telling a story and then there are these kind of like I don't know it, it like gains this kind of mythic reverb you know at certain points that just kind of resonates and hits readers in certain ways um and again I obviously there are other non-tolkien examples that that we could uh that we could point to I mean I think the uh the moment of the final encounter uh uh 
in uh, the like the Wizard of Earthsea is one example that I would give of like a, a, a highly mythic moment uh, mm-hmm. in another you know work of modern fantasy. Um, it, it, one one test that I often think like you know like those scenes that you often go back to and use as an illustration of something like you know when you're like I, I want I'm trying to you know it's like that moment in that story when like when when there are, when you find go to moments in stories that you feel like really it's kind of strong. captures something yeah like that's that probably you know that's kind of that the 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 mythic overtone there that that's being picked up on. And there's so much of what you're saying that like, you know, I'm trying to turn on the adaptation brain too, of like, you can see how much appeal there is in this. Yes. Broad definition, extreme relatability, lots of creativity. I mean, when you call it a work of art, that is kind of what this is. It's like sitting down at an impressionist painting and taking from it a different meaning completely than the person yeah. next to you. because It's going to hit you differently. So it's the same like materials on canvas but you're going to interpret it slightly differently depending on your own experience. And I think there's loads of films that have taken advantage of that, that you can come into a film and I'm going to feel very strongly about the portrayal because of X, Y, Z and my love of Tolkien and myth and things mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. compared to somebody that doesn't have any experience with it, who will still enjoy it mm-hmm. because it does have that broad appeal, right. but it will fall differently. Mm-hmm. Hence, right. you know, Marvel films, DC films, like right. Star Wars, like mm-hmm. all of this stuff has heavy myth in it. Oh yeah, Star Wars, gosh, yes. Right, but if yes. you read into it, you find it and get multiple layers, if you have no knowledge of myth, you're still going to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, absolutely. It's still going to have an effect on you, even mm-hmm. if you don't kind of um, have the language to say, this is the effect it's having on me and this is why. It's right. still going right. to have that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that Star Wars is a a, a classic example. Yeah, you know, a, 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 a classic example of what I was just saying. Like one of those things you keep going back to to use it as an illustration, right? You know, like the way in which Star Wars uh, is sort of used in the imaginative vocabulary of our culture really demonstrates the epic, the the ethic. Epic. Uh, sorry, Phil, your question is making me is distracting me. Phil wants to talk about mythic and epic, which I I. I I want to talk about. Well, let me finish what I'm saying first. The mythic overtones of Star Wars. Um, I want to think. So, Maggie, I, I, I'd be interested to hear you your response. Tolkien. Tolkien was skeptical of the the potential for like a dramatic visual medium to capture myth in the same way, or at least like. I'm thinking here of the passage in On Fairy Stories when he's talking about drama. Um, and the main point that he makes is that it's it's so much easier in a written medium to just to be suggestive, right? To just sort of... Uh, you can... You can have... Uh, you can create some like mythic associations with a single word, uh, like bread, for instance, right? Um, whereas when, you know, again, he was not talking about film because of, uh, you know, Tolkien's own experience and the status of the film industry at that time. Um, he was thinking about drama, about stage drama primarily. But he was like, so like on stage, you can't just evoke the concept of bread by saying, by using the word bread. You have to get 
an actual loaf of bread of some kind. Like it, it's going to be like an actual loaf of sourdough or pumpernickel or matzah or whatever it is. Right. Um, and therefore the kind of the, the broad suggestion, right. That can be contained in the concept of bread is not, is it's not possible to do that same thing um, in a visual medium because you have to make choices. You're, 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 the, the, the relationship between the viewer and the, work of art is more sort of explicit and direct in that way. Um, but I certainly don't think that like, well, that means that just shows that it's impossible to do like, you know, sort of mythic suggestiveness in film, but clearly you, you can't do it in exactly the same way. Right. I, no. I mean, when you've got a, a text medium, then the reader is making those yeah. choices when they see the word yeah. bread, the picture will form in their own head. They will have their own visualization. When you have it on screen, somebody else has made that choice for you. Ironically, and, you're being fed it. Oh, yeah. yeah indeed. <laughs> yes. And yes. then we have talked about that a lot. That's the thing that you give up when, you know, you, you do the film first, you lose that kind of creative input in your own processing. I think with, with Tolkien's expectations and opinions of adaptation, I can't think about that without separating what he had available in front of him at the time. It was way more limited, obviously, um, and technology's gotten better and things like that. So I do wonder what his opinion would be like now because it still doesn't work a lot, which is why we talk about things so much on this show and everybody mm -hmm. else talks about things so much. Adaptation is hard. Adaptation is difficult. It is yeah. nuanced. You have to be careful. You have to be thoughtful. You have to make a good story, but not piss off the people that love the originals. <laughs> you know, there's so many factors yeah. that if his slice of examples was fairly narrow because it was uk focused international tours didn't come the internet yeah. didn't exist we didn't have youtube clips we didn't have highlight reels then he would be making these decisions based off of what he had seen and even if you see incredible theater it could still be quite specific or limited or you know mm -hmm. too black and white i do think there's so much now it's small but there are so many things now that we could pull up some examples of nuance and how it plays and how it works and how you can suggest the concept of bread without showing bread i can't think of a clear example of bread of but bread specifically right yeah, yeah yeah but there are things where like well i you know i remember seeing billy elliott you guys remember that movie the oh, the yeah. boy that learns Wonderful. to be a ballet dancer mm -hmm. seen it on stage too it's lovely it was like my first film that I looked at as a film you know not as a movie that I went to see with my friends I was 18 and I just started reading into it loads and all of a sudden I realized that there were meaning in things that are placed in film and mm -hmm. discussing that with friends and reading into it differently and being like well I saw the color blue as impactful and representative of his mother and the dance teacher's words here were symbolic of you know and pulling these things in where the person sitting next to me didn't see any of that and they saw something totally different. Mm -hmm. The fact that you can pull that out of nuanced things like color, sound, performance, blocking, stage design, you know, I, yeah, I can go off on this for a while, but this is the stuff that, like the visual language that we have access to now is a lot more sophisticated. It has mm -hmm. grown like art does. And I yeah. would love to hear his opinions on it now. And I'm sure there's still a lot of stuff that he would say is crap because so do we, yeah. <laughs> but Right, the stuff right. Is good. It's real good. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I. I mean. I. I agree. Um, that's actually a really interesting example that you were just giving. The way in which, um, because there, there, 
it's easy if you're focused on a written medium. Like if that's your number one thing that you're focused on and kind of, you know, the visual depiction is sort of the secondary thing. It's easy to, to, to think like, wow, the, you know, there's so much more available. You, you, again, you can be so much more suggestive in things than you can in film. But there's a whole set of vocabulary that film, like a whole set of tools and vocabulary that film has that books don't have available to them. I'm just thinking of what you were just saying about color, right? That's a marvelous example. The color blue in a film can become a mythic suggestion. Like it can evoke, you know, the the kind the the the, the connections that it makes, the things that the the the. By using that color to connect various things throughout the film, you can just all of a sudden have a, you know, a blue car or a blue ball at one point later on in the in a, in a film suddenly now have this resonance and significance that a blue car on its own would not normally have. Right? Or a more accurate example, the sixth sense, the color red in that mm. does actually signify supernatural activity. So like right. when you see red, you know, something's up. And right. I didn't know that the first two times I saw it. And then somebody told me and then you see it everywhere. So, yeah. 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 And I, I often talk about it with this one image from Harry Potter, where it's from the seventh Harry Potter right after Ron leaves and Hermione's in the tent and Ron is outside, not Ron, Harry's outside the tent on this really unforgiving, craggy landscape right. and, and doesn't know what to do. And he's frustrated. I think I've even done it here potentially, but like, I think I remember that shot. Yeah. 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 Like it's such an unforgiving landscape that is unsettling that suggests uncertainty that suggests pitfalls mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. he's wearing dark colors not anything bright like that suggests things the only source of light is coming from where right. his friend so that suggests something and a movement and emotion so there's so many different ways to tell something and there's no dialogue in that eight second shot but so much is said right right and, that's and things just like visual impact when you think about things yeah. like character it can be yeah, and and things, Maggie, that I've learned uh, uh, to to pay attention to, like film vocabulary, I've learned from you. Um, not vocabulary about films, but vo vocabulary that films use. Things like what direction people are facing. Um, mm. You know what the the kinds of things that can be suggested in the in the in the patterns uh, of like the camera angles that are used. Uh, You're for... never gonna watch a film with traveling ever again. <laughs> this guy, I, I never am. I never am. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, it's true. Like I, I like Twitch every time I see something move from right to left now, I'm like, wait, oh, hang on. I know, I know it's, but, but it's, you know, it's, it, but I never noticed it at all before. So, um, and lighting sources, that's another one that I just, yeah. I, I find it so fascinating. I mean, there's so many, but like, I love seeing where the lighting source is because that usually means something like they're going to put some meaning behind where the sun is or yes. where the lantern is hanging or fireflies that's made me think of the um what they called the galadriel light remember that they used to mm -hmm. bring the lights in galadriel's eyes mm -hmm. i had no clue about that i just thought she looked ethereal uh, and then right. i watched all the extended edition stuff and they were talking about the galadriel light i went oh yes now i can see the dots in her eyes but actually it just helped the whole visualization of her being so ethereal yeah it made it feel other mm. yeah. mm -hmm. and that would be yeah. hard to describe on page but you can do it it would be very hard to do on on page on stage mm. and then film has gotten to a point where you probably can pull it off mm. and she did right right and of course that is a 
that is a uh, an apt segue, uh, Sarah, to think more about the Peter Jackson depiction and how how this question of myth uh, and mythic qualities get either shifted, you know, in some places downplayed. I think because again, this is to to sort of cite another kind of classic thing. This is one of the things, one of my first impressions of watching the Jackson uh, films was that he was de-emphasizing many of the mythic elements of the story. Um, uh, many of the things which are mythic in Tolkien become less mythic in uh, the Jackson films. Uh, one, of the, one of the obvious examples, and we've already talked about this, is the new Aragorn plotline, right? The like Aragorn, the unwilling or the, the, the reluctant Aragorn uh, mm -hmm. thing where he is very much uh, I mean in the in the book he is this mythic archetypal I am the returning king uh, you know I shall come to Minas Tirith uh, you know um, and it, it is the, the, I mean the the mythic echoes of you know the long lost king returning to his kingdom are very explicit from the beginning and give his character this sort of special kind of resonance and, and, and him, this, uh, this, this major status all the way through the book. And that status is significantly altered by Jackson's choice. Um, and now, you know, we talked about this and, and, and as we discussed before uh, that I'm not saying that that means it's a bad decision or doesn't work or, or whatever there, you know, there are lots of ways as we were discussing it previously that, it, that it works well and, and, and does interesting things. But it does seem to be one of those moments where they're kind of choosing um, connection with the modern viewer's experience and what people call relatability these days, though I still dislike that word because it's such a sloppy word. Like it's um, whenever you're using an adjective to describe a thing that's actually describing something in you, like mm. like relatability isn't a thing in them. It's relating to something you do. It's not, it's not, not something anyway, whatever. I find it a sloppy and confusing word, but anyway, like that, the, how, however, what articulates it, that's that, that seemed to be what they were going for. They wanted, they didn't want an, an Aragorn on this sort of, uh, you know, mythic pedestal. They wanted an Aragorn that everybody could relate to and say like, you know, I, I'm I I experience the same things that Aragorn does and 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 he's just like me. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, they did similar with Eowyn. Mm -hmm. uh, her story is very much reduced. Um, the the whole um, idea of her being so disguised as Durnhelm that even Merry doesn't realize it's Eowyn, and you know mm -hmm. he'd spent time with Eowyn, and yeah. he's riding on the same horse as Eowyn but thinks it's somebody else but there's a whole purpose to that that mm -hmm. is built into her story and that's that's very much reduced I think and um it's not again it's not that it's bad as you're saying it's not that it's bad but it's yeah. very different yeah. it's a different way of portraying her for perhaps a different kind of audience mm. um yeah. but that was something I missed because I rather like that where you have that m wonderful moment where she confronts the Witch King and the text says it was Eowyn and Durnhelm also. Also, yes, yes. Um, you lose that, don't you? Yeah. When 
There's yeah. no attempt to really disguise her. Mm. Well, and and the that whole concept of the identity of Dernhelm, like that that statement like if somebody tried to make that statement about that it would have no meaning in the film because there is no Dernhelm concept it's just a when everybody i mean mary knows from the first moment as you say like we all know that this is ao and there's no attempt at disguise there's no attempt to build a Dernhelm persona which then still and the Dernhelm persona is the one who goes seeking death right yes um and we don't get an Eowyn who is going seeking death in the film. We get an Eowyn who is bravely and transgressively going mm-hmm. to battle, right? But what what we see in her in her eyes, like what Miranda Otto conveys when she's in armor, right, is, is you know, tends to be like, I'm really scared, but I'm going to do it anyway, right? Stick with me, Mary, right? Like, we will support one another, um, all that, all that kind of stuff. What we don't get is this, like the this suicidal element of mm-hmm. of of Dernhelm. Like this is the one who goes seeking death. Suicidal is not exactly the right. That, that's obviously an element of what's going on with Dernhelm. It's not a sufficient way to explain what's going on with Dernhelm, but um, but it's a very significant element there. Hmm. Yeah. I was this. Uh distraction but i was also looking at phil's comment here how is a 21st century viewer supposed to relate to a numenorean exile or to the dunedine i i think both of those are really important examples because just because someone is relatable doesn't mean that we don't have things in there that we want to emulate but we can't Mm -hmm, so having an element of other is such a big part of creating a relatable hero that Mm -hmm. you have the unlikely hero you have the relatable hero you can mess with both those terms because I'm sure Corey hates both of them, but you can have the unlikely and the relatable hero that you, you feel for, you connect with on a certain level, like an exile. We've all Mm -hmm. felt like exiles. We all haven't fit in somewhere. We've all been kicked out of somewhere in some way, whether it be a group of friends, Mm -hmm. whatever that emotion is a core emotion. So you can carry that emotion into understanding Aragorn's experience. Yeah. The fact that he's part of the Dinodyne is like, Ooh, magic. I want that. You know, I feel <laughs> right, like there's always right. gonna be this element that you're kind of like striving yeah. with a hero. You get and them both, like- right? Yeah. This person is going through something that's like something that I've been through, yeah. but it's also in a situation which is very unlike my situation and much cooler than my own personal situation, right? So you kinda you you, you kinda get both pleasures there. Um and name your heroes. Like like we can yeah. do this with Skywalker we can do this with Harry Potter we can do this with Frodo like yeah all of them are relatable on some very core basic emotional human growth level but all of them will have some element that we're just never going to be able to attain mm-hmm. yeah absolutely um and I, so I I would add as far as like the film's bringing Aragorn like to our level that we can connect with him again it's not the circumstances uh, you know that we're connecting with, like, oh yes, I remember when they wanted me to be king. I felt the same way. Like, it's not that, right? It's, but, but, but we all have been in situations where we know that something great is expected of us, and we're worried that we're not going to be able to do it. Maybe I won't be strong or capable enough, and I'm going to disappoint everybody's expectations. So probably it might, maybe it's better for me not even to try because I, you know, then I won't disappoint everybody. And like, that's Aragorn, right, at the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring described how i felt doing my first like presentation in seventh grade like, that's how basic this feeling can be exactly 
Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So no, I mean it's 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean it's whereas again Aragorn it's not that Aragorn in the text has it's it's not that book Aragorn has no anxieties, uncertainties or or anything like that, but they're of a different kind, right? I mean it's it's I mean even 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 book Aragorn uh, is concerned about his own failure, right? Uh, you know, I mean, well, like when he's wrong and things like that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, you know, I, I, when he says things like, you know, I have, you know, led this company so far to ill fortune, right? You know, he's he's at the beginning of the two towers. We see an Aragorn who is at his wits end, feeling that he is like everything he's done has been a failure, uh, and he's let everybody down. Um, you give the choice to an ill chooser, right? He says when they when Legolas and Gimli cheerfully say that they will do whatever he says they think that he, he thinks they should do. Um, so again, it's not that that element is totally alien to 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 book Aragorn, but again, it's they've just they've gone way further out of their way to make that a core element of his character and to remove again those sort of more mythic elements like I am the the destined returning king and I know it and I've been training for this my whole life and and I am you know he still is like I, I don't know that we're going to survive Sauron is probably going to kill us all but you know so again it's it's not like he's speaking with some kind of sublime certainty but he is coming from a position of I am the destined king and I know it right which is yeah. uh, uh, and but that's I don't think there is any endeavor to make that relatable in the way that people talk about. But see, this is the thing about myth, right? I, I don't, I don't hear the story of Orpheus and Eurydice and say, "Oh, that's me, man." Like I felt the same way when I went to the underworld to try to beg for the life of my wife, right? Like it's that's not how you relate to myth, but it nevertheless touches you, right? It can be. It's totally different. It's and so even. This idea of Aragorn stepping into, uh, you know, when he has that moment that I briefly quoted before in Minas Tirith, or in, in Minas Tirith, in the Council of Elrond, when he says, like, I shall come to Minas Tirith, right? He, he declares that he is going to, uh, you know, take up the mantle and th that this is the moment, right, um, that, that he's been waiting for, that the Dúnedain have been waiting for for generations. The, the sign has been given and he's going to step forward. Um, that's a that's a moment that that gives me chills and that does impact me that does affect me in ways like like the Orpheus and Eurydice myth does that that other mythic stories do um but again not in the same way not in the Maggie just as you say not in the yeah I felt the same way in eighth grade <laughs> you know like I had that ex exact same experience in eighth grade like that's not it's 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 a very different you're you're you're, you're relating you're connecting on a very different level mm. And somebody asked, does that mean that they're vulnerable? I feel like that's a good word to start with because vulnerable relates to human experience. And you don't think of that with a stereotypical archetypal hero, mm -hmm. right? Like vulnerable is not one of the strong words that comes to the forefront of a description where I think right. relatable hero, that's a good word to include in the list. I mm -hmm. wouldn't say it's the only word or the keyword, but it shows flaws. It mm -hmm. shows malleability. Mm-hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it shows something that we can relate to. So I think vulnerable is a safe place to start thinking about that. Aragorn yeah. is not afraid to show his emotions. Mm. Not at all. Um, in fact, he is about as far away from toxic masculinity as you can get, isn't mm. he? Because yeah. yeah, he will cry uh, right. and will embrace he, his friends. He embraces and, his yeah. friends and, and, you know, he will kiss Boromir when Boromir is dying. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, you know, this is somebody who is 
able to open himself up to his emotions and show them to others and there's a vulnerability in that actually that mm-hmm. yeah yeah we can yeah. agreed agreed how so but having said that i think there are a bunch of places i think that you know your aon example is an excellent example sarah and the aragorn one we've been talking about where the film's kind of pull away from the kind of mythic overlay, the kind of mythic resonance that Tolkien gives to many of his characters and his events. I think it would be unfair to say that the films just like sort of back away from that entirely. I think that part of the reason of the the power of the films and the 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 you know length they have had, the impact they have had on the lives of so many people over the last 20 years um, shows that they did in fact capture um, whether it was capturing mythic things that Tolkien was doing in the stories or whether it was doing their own different mythic things. Um, so let's, let's think a little bit more about that. Let's think a little bit more about their successes in this way. What are, what are moments in the film, uh, in any of the films that you guys think are, have that particular, that, that kind of mythic power, that kind of, that kind of resonance? And go. Well, um, we could start, Sar, with what you were just talking about—the death of Boromir scene. Yeah, right? I think mm-hmm. that that's one that really. That's done, actually. I it think. is beautifully done. Yeah, it is beautifully done. And has the element of passing the torch, you know, that that kind of letting the legacy continue. That feels important. Yes, mm-hmm. deep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's see if I had to. If I had to point to particular thing, I'm trying to be very specific, Maggie, in the ways that you've taught me to be in observing the film, right, and how things are presented. The two moments in the depiction of that scene that I think really kind of trigger uh, a sort of a myth reaction, and not just an emotional reaction, because just as like two characters we've attached to who are acting beautifully, you know, I'd be crying anyway, right, in that moment. Um, but how how do they give, because I think they do give a sort of a, a mythic overlay there. This is not just a touching moment between two bros, right? It is that, and very powerfully that, but there's more to it than that. The two things that I would point to are um, Boromir taking his sword and bringing his sword to his breast like that. And that was important for him to grab it. Yes. I, I need yeah. this to come. Yeah, he goes out of his way to grab It's not just there, right? He goes, he, you know, he makes that gesture, you know, explicitly. And then the mm-hmm. second one, the one, Sar, that you just mentioned of Aragorn kissing him on the mm-hmm. forehead, right? When he, when he, when he, when he kisses him, it's, it is. A, a moment of emotional vulnerability, but again, especially in the context of the sword gesture, right? Um, those two gestures seem to me to overlay, like, yes, you have the the personal interactions between the two of them, but they manage to overlay it with this epic sense of kingship, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, am, I am swearing to my king, and yes. my king is, you know... Blessing. receiving yes the blessing yes. of the king yes. and um the the, the intimacy of that through to the next exactly. life i mean yes oh Offering guys you just, you just opened a whole new door for me and like we're crossing thresholds and we're passing these yeah. lots happened there yes yeah, yeah there's it's a redemption moment for boromir as well yeah and that kiss is to me that is 
acceptance, forgiveness, help, everything that mm. passes from the king to his vassal, if you mm -hmm. want. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The real connection there between them that is, is it's way more than he's dying, I'm sad. Yes. And it's way more than I'm here for you, brother. I got your back. It's, yeah. it's so much bigger than that. Yeah. 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 And, and the and, and the kiss becomes more than just a spontaneous expression of emotion. Right. Like I'm I'm trying to show you how much I love and respect you, you know, in this moment. Right. It, uh, it, because it was like that the kiss of fealty. That yeah. was how it worked. Like when you swore to become someone's vassal and accepted someone's service, um, yeah. that was formalized with a kiss on the mouth, mm -hmm. by the way, usually, um, yeah. uh, which was uh, deliciously and uh, uh, played upon in courtly love language, right? Like, come, let me bestow upon you the the, the kiss of fealty, or please bestow upon me the kiss of fealty, right? Um uh, to your uh, to your uh, courtly lady, but anyway, yeah. So that that's um, yeah, that's that that's one moment where I think that they are really, and, and it's interesting because it's a moment in which, it, I mean, it's an Aragorn moment. Like they're in that moment where, although they have, in some sense, right? Okay, stripped is a severe word, but they have reduced, perhaps, let's say, uh, Aragorn's mythic stature, right, throughout the film to that point um he is not he is not the archetype of the returning king you know of the long lost heir um uh he is that but that's not the role that he's playing in the film uh to that point but they overlay that uh all of that 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 mythic concept of kingship and fealty and uh loyalty and um and i think that's really I think that's really fascinating. Um, and it's, it's really just making me also think about the scene we talked about a few weeks ago that I love. And it wasn't until the end of our comparison that I realized Corey didn't when I was getting all hyped up and excited. <laughs> uh, when Elrond brings the sword to Aragorn and he's yeah. going up. Yeah. And yeah. the way Aragorn <laughs> picks up the sword is what made me think about it with the Boromir moment. The way he picks it up is not just fine i'll take it or uh yes it is time he's like yeah you yes, know yes. like there's a real decisive and it's because of that he's able to command the arms of the and dead it's the world's like longest that. sword that no one could possibly use. <laughs> there's <laughs> a lot there's a lot in that we'll not unpack today okay. but yeah, <laughs> it's reminiscent to me of that same thing it's not just picking up a sword it's picking up a legacy it's picking up yeah. power yeah up. Yeah. Everything. And and that was a really fun conversation. Sorry we were talking about this in the context of discussing great. Elrond's role and everything. We're both getting worked up and him in despair and me in joy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She was talking about how beautifully effectively that scene was shot and, and 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 everything. And I had that same reaction that you were showing on your face. It's like, why is Elrond here? This doesn't make any sense, right? But actually, sorry, that was such a, a fruitful conversation for me as I'm like, no, I see in the context of the movie. It absolutely makes sense. Like I can't, it's still hard for me to reconcile in my own imagination, you know, Elrond by himself, just like I'm going to schlep across the entire continent in order to deliver the sword. Um, but, but, but it's okay. Like it, it, and I know we've already talked about it, but it bears repeating, but that's okay that you notice that difference too. Like right. it should smart. It should smack as wrong because it's such a big change. 
but you can recognize that both are good. Right. The difficulty is when you can't recognize that one is good or the filmmakers haven't prepared folks for the difference. So that difference is only shocking. There's no explanation. Mm -hmm. If it's shocking and good, you can work your way through it. If it's shocking and bad, you're never going to come back from that. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. If it it, is a difference. (laughs) And, and, and you can see even again, even the first time I saw the film, I felt that that scene worked in an important way, right? Like I, I didn't emerge from that scene. I entered that scene with all of my re- resistances up. I was like, but Elrond is here. That is absurd. Right. Like, and I could, I couldn't get over it for a while. Right. Um, but when at, at the end of the scene, even though I was still reeling, like, and thinking that it's absurd that Elrond is there, I, I couldn't, you know, not, feel the the weight and significance of that scene um it 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 works and the more i was thinking about it the more you were helping me think through it in the context of elrond's role uh in the movies as a whole um the the the, the clearer it became exactly how well that works in the context of the story that they're telling um so yes it it does it doesn't able to me to set it aside yeah and yeah. here too, leading to the myth element, having Elrond bring that sword—that's bridging two communities together. That mm, and yes. one is ethereal and something we won't be able to attain. And yeah, and moving into the supernatural with the army of the dead. There's there's so many factors in that one scene too that mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. see the mythic influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, that's a really that's a really marvelous point too. Um, he says stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Was it a marvelous point? It was totally a marvelous point. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it was totally a marvelous point. And the reason it's marvelous is that so there are two things that it makes me that that, that you're making me realize here. One is the and we talked about I mean I think maybe we touched on this a little bit before, but the way in which it separates in the book, of course, the sword is reforged and given to Aragorn right after the Council of Elrond, right? And before they leave uh Rivendell. You know, like when when he's right there, right? Instead of instead of instead of you know, it saves it saves a lot of commuting later on. But um, uh, but what's the effect of that, right? In the film, the focus is retained on Frodo, both there and afterwards, right? The 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 thing that happens at the end of the Council of Elrond is is one thing, right? Frodo's choice to take the ring. And then I, I, what's this? It's not, but it's not a separate thing. Like his, his companions gathering around him, right? Um, and the establishment of the of the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, as officially pronounced by Elrond at the end. But it's all about Frodo taking up the quest, right? And the, and the support that he's going to get, the, continuing even afterwards with the whole like is Mordor to the left or right scene, right? Which is comical and I, I, I sounded a little bit awkward, but still the focus is on Frodo, right? Um, Whereas by shifting the I'm going to give the sword to Aragorn moment until much later, right, until way, uh, uh, way further on in the next film, um, two films, it's in the beginning of The Return of the King, right, that that, that happens. Um, we have this, we isolate the myth of Aragorn taking up, you know, the, the, the mantle of king. And this leads to your second marvelous point about the paths of the dead and the role that they give to it, which I always felt my rea- my first reaction with the paths of the dead thing 
was that again it feels it felt cheapened right mm. that like Aragorn's authority to command the dead is in himself not in the fact that he happened to be the dude who was carrying the magic sword right mm-hmm. and the way that the sword gets emphasized it felt to me like I I I felt again like Aragorn was being cheapened when I first saw the film. But what you're inviting me to see here is that they are actually the first, the combination of the giving of the sword to Aragorn and his, his dramatic taking of it up right uh, in that earlier scene. And then his wielding it and its recognition by the King of the dead. It makes that sword becomes, they have made the sword into into a mythic uh, item. Like it is the mythic connection between him and kingship. And that's what is recognized, right, by the King of the Dead. I also wonder if there was a leaning into that purely because of pop culture. I mean, this is coming out the same time as Harry Potter and not long after Star Wars. And there's lots of discussion about powerful objects in heroic literature and mythic literature Mm -hmm. and things like that. So we have lightsabers and magic wands and... Mm -hmm we need the sword to be reminiscent of that or like reflective of that idea so maybe i can just hear the filmmakers having this conversation it doesn't do any harm for the sword to look like a powerful object that allows someone to fulfill their potential right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i can see them saying that's a good connection there's also a sense in which that sword can only be wielded by aragorn Mm. this one can only be wielded by harry this right. lightsaber was meant for your hand. Yeah. It, there's a way in which these characters are actually becoming one with right. the object. Uh, and it is the two together, the wielder and the wielded, that actually becomes the whole thing that yeah. must do what right. must be done. As, yeah. as, as gets really strongly emphasized in Star Wars when Luke loses his hand, when he loses his lightsaber, right? There's like yeah. the, him, him losing that lightsaber becomes this... Um, yeah. You know he's he's lost part of himself, right? He you know uh, so you you can see how that connection gets played out later on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I mean I, I like this conversation and the idea of like what's lost from changing myth to film, and I don't know if there's a loss. There's a re-emphasis, right? Like yeah, it's, it's just different. It's just a shifting of where the attention goes, which is a very filmic thing. We want to draw your eye here, so mm-hmm. right. Instead of right. seven pages telling me to focus on Aragorn becoming king, we're just going to tie the sword to it mm-hmm. and have that be him taking up the mantle. Yeah, so it's like a synecdoche of it. Yeah. 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 Um, another mythic moment uh, in the films that strikes me, um, because again, it's another place where we can see a shift in focus from book to film, but a place where I think even more clearly than many of the the examples we've been giving so far is a moment which has strong mythic overtones in the book and also in the film, but not by the same mechanism. And that is the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep, the charge of Theoden and Aragorn and the arrival of Gandalf. I was the- just thinking about that. I was like, can we talk about the Christ imagery? Is that myth? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's... There's a borderline, isn't there? But mm-hmm. that's what that's one that came to my mind. But I I didn't know if that was too close to biblical reference as opposed to mythic import. Well, <laughs> but a lot of biblical re- reference is designed to overlay with 
mythic suggestiveness, right? I mean, if you're t- if you're tying something to, you know, uh, to the resurrection of Christ or to the uh, uh, you know or to the Garden of Eden or something like that, um, it is it is exactly mythic suggestiveness that you're giving that you're giving to it. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> by the way, this is one of the things, one of the really awkward and frustrating to me side effects of the sort of perversion of the word myth in our culture is that um, I have found in my own experience that Christians always get upset when I use the word myth to talk about Jesus or the Bible or anything, right? Because it implies it's not true, true, right? It's like that it's a lie that some people believe. That is not at all what I mean by myth, and it doesn't have anything to do with untruth. Um, mm-hmm. But there is no question that in the concept of myth that we were talking about, like, yes, the story, uh, I mean, even Tolkien talked about the story of Jesus and his resurrection as a myth. Um, mm-hmm. As, you know, in his case, like, the, 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 you know, myth, uh, uh, myth became, became history is the whole, like, that's the whole essence of that conversation he had with C.S. Lewis, which led to C.S. Lewis's conversion. Um, but in any, any case, <laughs> but, but so I'm, I, I just wanted to make explicit that. that thing, that thing, which is lurking around uh, when we're making these connections, Maggie, because I, I, I think it's really important. So just disclaimer <laughs> want to, uh, to make that clear but absolutely so the the it is people want to always want to talk about uh gandalf and or frodo being christ figures and mostly i get a little frustrated with that mostly because not because of the christ part but because of the figure part um it's like when you say someone is a christ figure you're saying a particular thing about them, which most people don't even don't don't really know what that means on a on a on a literary level. Um, uh, any more than a lot of most people don't know what it means to say that something's an allegory. To be perfectly frank, um, like when people say that the Chronicles of Narnia is an allegory and it's not an allegory, um, and also, boy, that makes. I, I can't even say that in front of my own family without like my parents and siblings getting mad at me. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, because they don't understand what an allegory on is. On that note, we should really do a few episodes on Narnia. We totally <laughs> should. We absolutely yeah. should. Um, yeah. Anyway, point is, <laughs> coming back to Gandalf, um, is the overlay, the mythic overlay of the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely one of the things that's happening in the rediscovery. Um, the way in particular, the way that, um, the, the way in the book, the way in which Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli don't recognize Gandalf at first is, is exactly like what happens repeatedly in the Gospels after Jesus's resurrection when he meets his disciples and they don't recognize him or they don't recognize him until like right as he vanishes or something like that. Um, also, the sort of the the white radiance of Gandalf right in that moment is also like that moment of the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountaintop. So again, there are very clear like overlays that Tolkien is doing. Does this mean he's trying to say Gandalf is Jesus? No, he's not saying Gandalf is Jesus. It's not about that, but it is very much that kind of mythic overlay that's being given there. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, I, I was thinking especially about the, um, Okay, the the very end of the Two Towers film, 
the very end of the battle. Um, I think that the last charge of Theoden is a, uh, at, at Helm's Deep is a powerfully mythic um, moment in the books. And I think that they are, um, uh, I think that they are doing mythic things in the film too. That's not on my short list of scenes that I'm like, oh man, like that scene in the film is like one of the ones that hits deeply. Like the Boromir death scene, totally on my list of films that I find like most powerful, most moving, most significant. Um, the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep, it doesn't reach that status, but but there is, I, I feel that there is still a deliberate mythic overlay that they're giving to it there, that they're, that they're wanting it to be evocative. Um, and... Uh, um, so what do you, do, does that seem right to you, Maggie? Do you feel like there's, there are th uh, that they're doing things there in the film, right? Like that they're wanting us to sort of prompting us to, to, to view it in this. Yeah. Or to, yeah, to kind of, to kind of have, to, 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 to give it that kind of weight. Yeah. I mean, definitely. It's also because think about where this is in terms of the three film arc, you need something big at the mm -hmm. end of the second carry us into the third so right. leaning into that import hits better mm -hmm. and when you're bringing in all these different factions and we see the light coming from over the hill and the charge down and yeah Aimer, the light like he slides in doesn't he Amor like comes in from the side and all of a sudden yeah. like i forget what he says what the line is like he's not alone or something like that before right. he charges down the hill mm -hmm. you do have that like rohirrim moment that you can't help but get carried up in it. So yeah. there is that let's sweep the audience up with us. Let's make this a big moment of we're saving the day. And mm -hmm. by doing mm -hmm. it through the light from Gandalf's staff makes it more ethereal. And the last minute, the seven, you know, the last hour kind of a thing. There's there's a lot of parts of that that I could see work for making it bigger, making it more cinematic and therefore landing so much stronger mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. as of course the light explodes across the dark yes. orbs, you then mm -hmm. get that rousing music mm -hmm. coming in behind it which is just extraordinary and you, you get caught up in that moment yeah uh, but yeah, not I, caught up as i get in the charge of the rohirrim at the Pelennor fields it's true it's true and that that hits me that 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 is another one of my short list of scenes that yeah, i find yeah. most powerful in the film but i but it's exactly that kind of that uh, one feels more sorry i just cut across you but the, okay, the, okay. the fields feels more man-made is the wrong word there's there is something more supernatural about gandalf joining them i feel in the yeah films. yeah and and and, and the way i it's it's the dawn. Think of this. The, the, that's in the book, right? The significance mm -hmm. of the coming of the dawn. It's important. It's important in this kind of mythical and symbolic way that this happens at the coming of dawn. Um, and I thought it was fascinating the way they lean into that in the film, right? Like this is we're going to. I mean, goodness, Dawn comes like nobody's business in the, in the film, right? The, the radiant sunlight and, you know, and the coming down the hill and like the orcs are all like, oh, oh you know, and, yeah. as if somebody and just switched on the lights. Over the spears to smush people. Uh, yeah, yeah. Even the choice, which is a risky choice because like the charge, like the slope that they're coming down is so steep that it's yeah, hard right. not to watch that That's and be like, 
how yeah, that's you not... can't do that like that yeah. i mean it, it really it, it challenged disbelief right yeah. but nevertheless like it's you can't see gandalf in his white radiance on top of the hill and the sun shining in behind him and then the you know them coming to, and the, the fact that they're coming down from on high Right. It, yeah. It's literally like this sort of heavenly r- rescue. Yeah. Uh, and, right. And down such a steep slope, you know, it just makes me think of like King Arthur winning the Battle of Baden by himself. Like it just yeah. becomes legend. Like these guys ran down this straight sheer rock face and then they beat an army of millions. And right. you can hear the stories coming yeah. out of it that are going to be yeah. told around campfires for generations to come. And we're watching it happen and it actually happened like that, you know? So there is yes. this kind of magical element yeah. to it yes uh uh larry on youtube was quoting dawn is ever the hope of men right which is a great line in the book nobody says that in the movie but they do it anyway right i mean they 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 kind of they they, they kind of capture that and again it's there are ways as i say this isn't this is a great scene it's not one of the great scenes right from these films which is really a testimony to how wonderful these films are uh, more than anything else but um uh, but nevertheless, I think it, it, it is a place where we can see them doing different things or them going about in some different ways to capture, um, even to capture some of the same kind of mythic resonance that it has. But they're using film techniques instead of book techniques to do mm-hmm. it. Um, and I think it's a really interesting um it's a really interesting example of this kind of of this kind of choice and of these kinds of differences. And pacing wise too, when you think about where it comes and what it leads into. So the end of two going into three, they do build it up super, super big to the point that it explodes, but also what they were coming from. Like they really almost lost. Mm-hmm. They really almost lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he came in just at the right moment. Whereas we don't get that level of desperation too often. So bringing that kind of element into it, I feel like builds it, builds it up even more that it worked as a final scene for that film. Mm-hmm. And then Return of the King, we had like nine endings. So we had yes. lots of opportunities to, but Return of the King too was also one that made me think about it, it was uh, Frodo going off on the ship, that scene where he kisses his friends and mm-hmm. steps onto the ship that yes. obviously harkens of yeah, every so myth. He kisses Sam's of. forehead in such a similar way to how Aragorn mm-hmm. embraces Boromir at his death. It's yeah. 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 Beautiful and, and with the beautiful reversal of that, right? It's the one who's who's what's the one who's going off, right? This time it's the sort of dying one, right? Not exactly dying, but in the position of the dying one who is doing the forehead kissing. Yeah. The departing one. Yeah. And he really is passing it on to Sam. It it does feel like a passing of a torch on oh, to yes. Sam. The last pages are for you. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. home. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the image of the ship sailing off uh there at the end, like the, the visual image so beautifully captures um and this, of course, I, you know, we haven't even, you know, we, we only had one brief reference, Sarah, that you were just giving to the to Howard Shore score, right, and the music and its impact on these things. Um, and we haven't talked about, you know, John Howe and Alan Lee at all either. Um, but, yeah, the visuals of that, how they, there are, of course, a lot of things that we could say in looking at, like, you know, Howe and Lee's art, um, not even in the films, just like their 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 drawings and paintings um and the ways in which they are trying 
in some places to capture a lot of these uh, these sort of mythic things. I mean, there are a couple different reasons, right, that you can do illustration. You can sometimes you can try in an illustration to like make real and visible and almost tangible, right, something which is uh, you know which is just sort of an idea. Um, and then there are other times when you might be trying to capture right that element that 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 very mythic element um i think as far as like pure like visual images that could just be captured in a still right that image of the last ship sailing off into the harbor um under a swift sunrise you know like that, uh is is um though they're sailing off into the west and so they're not in fact, seeing the sunrise. Um, anyway, th that 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 picture is 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 one example of just a beautiful v image that where where you know How and Lee have really caught the uh, the sort of the mythic significance of that moment. I think. And I and that is one that you think if it was hanging up in the National Gallery and we didn't know it had anything to do with Tolkien, you could probably still get a feeling of the emotion mm -hmm. and the intention mm -hmm. painted onto that. You might yeah. question arrival versus departure, which is always kind of a nice thought. Right. Mm. But right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I'm yeah. saying this. I'm looking at this beautiful print above me. It's <laughs> on your office wall. Do you, what is it? Of? It's uh, it's Ted Naismith's Tenequitil. Ah, yes. And the more you look at it, the more you see. And there's a beautiful white ship at the bottom of this striking mountain. And the top of the mountain looks like it's gone into heaven and is ethereal. And yeah, so I'm literally interpreting this as we're sitting here going, yeah, example. There you go. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. It is a stunning piece of artwork. Mm. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I love, uh, um, I love Naismith's Silmarillion landscapes. It's mm. just, it's yeah. just amazing landscapes are just Gorgeous. beyond everything yeah 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 absolutely um well, there's lots of things we can pull into this is what i'm hearing all of the myth is is happening whether we try it or not but they're obviously <laughs> trying it <laughs> yeah yeah i mean and i still think i mean one can still say across the board i think in a lot of ways that i think it's still true that they um there's still a lot of places where in the film they go out of their way to de-emphasize some of the I, I i which i with treebeard i felt for instance you know uh treebeard and the ants one of the i mean i agree with c.s lewis in citing the ants as an example of a place where tolkien has really captured that mythic uh overlay in his depiction of the ants um but where we feel that i think most strongly is in the story of the ants and the ant wives mm -hmm. right um and the way that in the film Treebeard is made into a much more comical figure, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're prompted to laugh at him much mm -hmm. more in the films, um, at him and not with him most of the time, um, and uh, and therefore, I, it's not that there is no remnant of the kind of mythic overlay, but it's there's I think very little. Uh, comparatively that we get in the films compared to the uh compared to the books with treebeard particularly mm -hmm. agreed yeah i'm i'm like i want to talk more but i'm like well, i know we have to finish in seven minutes so. yeah i know we've reached <laughs> the part of the show where it becomes awkward to raise new topics right. because we know we won't get a chance to discuss them yeah, yeah. we have a hard end uh tonight we just do. because yeah. directly after this it's my fault. Sorry no, about that. Well, I mean, we do have a few minutes left, though. So there, I feel like we need to turn it to you. Is there? Uh -oh. No, no. <laughs> <it's> <laughs> not, 
favorite, favorite scenes, favorite moments, or mythic elements that we haven't touched um, on? Or okay, um, one of my favorite scenes is Sam confronting Shelob. Mm. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, because film and book, but film and book. I mean, I love it in the book because it's just extraordinary. The description that goes into Shelob is always, um, I've always found it compelling, mm -hmm. uh, but I thought it was quite well done in the film. Actually, you've got that real sense of the dankness of Shelob's mm -hmm. lair, and um, you, you can almost smell it you know, sitting there in the cinema, maybe that's someone's bad popcorn, I don't know. But it's actually, it's about the small person confronting the monstrous. The big bad. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and she is monstrous. Uh, and yet you have Sam confronting her, determined to not only, you know, fight her off, but defend mm. Frodo yeah. at the same time. Um, and that is, to me, it's it's a wonderful moment. Um, I mean, someone's just made the point in the chat there that she looks like a regular spider and not a monster. And that's the thing. See, I don't think Shelob actually is a spider at right. all. Right. Um, people think in spider form. But how do you depict that on film? You know, uh, you're going to have to go with something. And they did at least go with a really horrifying looking spider. Right. Um, but it's it's that moment of the very small confronting the monstrous mm. and mm -hmm. actually prevailing. I love that moment. I really do. Yeah, I, I it is complicated. I mean, um, I um, I on the one hand, I, I I think I agree with Edith, but it's but you can see I, I, who was who was talking about the regular spider. Um, Sheila does. In the film, film she love does strike me as much more spider-like than um, I don't think of her. Like I don't imagine she love in the book moving like a spider. You know, like no. in my imagination, that's not what I'm what what I picture there. Whereas, you know, the way that she you know scuttles around and yeah. crawls up the cliffside and everything, she, she I mean she's huge um, and like, terrifying, uh, but she does she does look like a spider. There's it. Her, her movements are like connected to my like I've seen spiders not that large but I've seen spiders that move like that right and yeah. so it, it sort of um, puts her in my senses like in that kind of category where I don't I don't have her categorized there exactly uh, in the um, uh, in the film but or in in the book rather when I read it um, but anyway I, I um, and so that does kind of take me but that but at the same time you could say, Sarah, coming back to the other point that you were making, because she is more kind of practical, right? More real. It's it is in one sense more terrifying. She's not just like an idea of something mm -hmm. that that Sam is standing against. Um, movie Sam looks like he's in more danger than yeah. book Sam ever seems like i mean i'm not saying that book sam isn't in danger like obviously she's still monstrous and, and horrible and incredibly dangerous but um but again that practical feeling like w when you look at the film yes on the one hand she looks more like a spider than she does in the book but also she looks like a huge enormous horrifying spider and it's like how could he possibly you know fight her off right you know the the feeling of desperation is even and and, and tension is even greater in some ways in the film so th there i think there is a kind of a trade off that we see there I do and it, that conversation. oh sorry no go ahead go ahead go ahead no, no, 
wonder what that conversation was like in terms of like developing the monster for film because obviously they know the source material and there must have been a lot of concept art to decide they invented loads of creatures for the film that are not in real life so they're comfortable making yeah. fictional creatures but they chose an actual creature for this one so mm. that that's quite a decision and mm -hmm. the more you were talking about it of how sam on, on film is a little bit more threatened that that resonated because people are scared of spiders because yep. they're weird unpredictable movement kind of mm, creepy yeah. they can ball up tiny and then jump you know there's all right. these things that the unpredictability is really terrifying mm, yeah. so then if you make it real big in a confined space with a poisonous pincer then yeah my hero is under threat a lot more intensely than i think sam was in the text Mm -hmm. and you mm -hmm. need that because the film the scene's only 30 seconds long so yeah, we right. got to get that across real fast mm -hmm. right <laughs> right but i do think i mean coming back to that to our theme of of myth one of the effects of her being more spider-like is that it does the confrontation between sam and shelob does feel less mythic it mm -hmm. is more like she is more like a a very large and very dangerous animal that he is. Do, do you see what I mean? I mean, there's that again, he's in, he's in danger, but, and again, here I'm sort of channeling things that CS Lewis talks about and things like this, but it's a different type of danger, it's a danger that feels different um, mm -hmm. than, uh, than the, than the, the danger that he's in, in the book. Um, uh more suspense in a in in a way more more sense of physical threat mm. and yet without that mythic overlay and the mythic overlay that's given in the in the book it's hard to see how they could possibly convey it in the film yeah. um because they convey it um uh as um oh somebody was talking about this uh in the chat but i forget who it was um because they they give us tolkien gives us shelob's point of view yeah. for mm -hmm. a few paragraphs right um we hear about you know age long she dwelt right you know we get that that marvelous paragraph of her you know and the greater now was her wrath and hunger um and so the now then when we come back to sam's point of view and he's confronting the monster like we know what the monster is thinking right, right. we know the you know, and and therefore we have this whole um uh, point of view, which makes her this um, a truly monstrous creature, this figure of evil from the elder days, uh, um, and she's uh, she's you can't make her talk right uh, on the film, right? That would totally undermine uh, how terrifying she is. Um, yeah. But how else can you really show her point of view in that way? But yeah. And now we got to stop. Now we got to stop because it's time for class. Sarah's <laughs> teaching tonight. Well, you know, if I don't do my class, my boss is going to get really. It's true. it's true. I have heard horrible things about uh, how strict your boss is. So, yeah. He, he, is, he is some dude, I'll tell you. <laughs> awesome. Guys. Great. Thank you guys. Thanks for joining us. Thanks everybody. Uh, it was a really fun discussion. Um, uh, th Sarah, thank you so much for uh, not only um, uh, not only joining us today, but extending your hospitality to Maggie as she can. <laughs> Me Wi-Fi at Sue Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks very much, everybody. See you guys. Yeah. We should be back next week. I think next week we're back on as as normal. So um, yeah. uh, we will we will see you guys again next week. Yes, I'll be there. <laughs> we'll I'll be, there. I'll be here and Maggie will be somewhere. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thanks. Bye.